Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Wednesday, January the 5th, 2022. The show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the 10th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 90th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show features our special guest, professor and doctor of economic geography, Dr. Jack Ryan. We review his fascinating article that he published following the exit of the United States military from Afghanistan back in August of this year and continue our discussion on Afghanistan with a particular focus on the democratic secular government that brought the very same democratic reforms that we claim we have sought to bring to Afghanistan all these years is the very government we actually overthrew. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. We are very excited, and we will shortly formally introduce our guest for tonight. What I wanted to start the show off with today is returning to the status of Julian Assange. His mother wrote an open letter. She addressed it to the world. She wrote it on December 28th, 2021. And I encourage you to listen to these words. They are stunning, stunning words from the heart of a mother. Anyhow, she writes, 50 years ago, when I first gave birth as a young mother, I thought there could be no greater pain. But I soon forgot it as I held my beautiful baby boy in my arms. I named him Julian. Now I realize I was wrong. There is a greater pain. The unrelenting pain of being the mother of an award-winning journalist who had the courage to publish the truth about high-level government crimes and corruption. The pain of seeing my son, who tried to publish important truths tarnished worldwide, The pain of seeing my son who risked his life to expose injustice, framed and deprived of the right to a fair trial again and again. The pain of watching a healthy son slowly deteriorate because he was denied proper medical and health care in years and years of imprisonment. The anguish of seeing my son subjected to cruel psychological torture in an attempt to break his immense spirit. The constant nightmare that he will be extradited to the United States and then spend the rest of his days buried alive in total isolation. The constant fear that the CIA might carry out their plans to assassinate him. The wave of sadness as I watched his frail body collapse 
exhausted from a mini-stroke at the last hearing due to chronic stress. Many people were traumatized to see a vengeful superpower using its unlimited resources to intimidate and destroy a defenseless individual. I want to thank all the decent and caring citizens protesting globally against the brutal political persecution Julian has suffered. Please keep raising your voice to your politicians until that is all you will hear. His life is in your hands. Signed on December 28, 2021, Christine and Assange. So I wanted to start the show off with that. This show bringing light into darkness. The darkness is this informational or this disinformational environment in which we live in. And it's because of people like Julian Assange and Daniel Ellsberg and the Afghan papers that we eventually can get glimpses into the reality, into the truth of the world around us. And these are the people and these are the folks that we criminalize. And my heart goes out to Julian first and, of course, his mother and father and brother and family. With that being said, I will move on. Again, I wanted to remind you that this is bringing light into darkness. Today is Wednesday, January the 5th, 2022. We will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, January the 10th, 2022. I wanted to turn our attention to the content of the show tonight. We are really blessed to have with us a special guest. We've been talking about Afghanistan, and actually we cited some of Dr. John Ryan's work last show reached out to him and he accepted the invitation to be here tonight. So first, Dr. Ryan, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Um, thank you very, very much for having me, Pedro. I'm very, very pleased to do this. Well, very good. Well, listen, just a little bit about Dr. John Ryan. He is a retired professor of geography and a senior scholar at the University at Winnipeg, where he taught for 32 years. He has his Ph.D. from McGill and taught a wide range of courses. His research and world interest took him on travels to over 50 countries. And Dr. Ron, your PhD, was it in geography, or what was your PhD in? It was in, it was in economic geography with a, an emphasis on the Soviet Union. Let's just take a second to explain, what is economic geography? <laughs> well, it's how people develop the resources of an area, and it deals with the economy and how it relates to the, to the landforms and the geography of the area. So it's, it's all-encompassing, let's put it that way. Very interesting, very interesting. And you've been to 50 countries, which is almost half your age. I'm just so enamored that you are 92 years old, living in the heart of the winter, up there with your two cats, uh, <laughs> up, there, up there in Canada, and still writing really important articles for, uh, for folks to, if they're interested in learning about the history and the current situation in Afghanistan. And that's what I wanted to turn to. In 1978, yes. you were actually in Afghanistan, and I wanted to pick up our discussion of Afghanistan in 1978, or just before if you prefer, but you were uh, in Afghanistan in November of 1978. That's some six months after a progressive government, socialist government, came to power there. At that time, 
you wrote that you were on sabbatical leave as a professor from the University of Winnipeg, and prior to this, you'd been in Asia for seven months on an agricultural research project, conducting documentary case studies of farms, some 70 studies in 12 countries, starting in Japan and then ending with four farms in Afghanistan. So you land in Afghanistan. Apparently, it's a peaceful time after this coup, and you received the full cooperation from the government authorities and the Faculty of Agriculture at Kabul University. Tell us what you found when you arrived and that particular part of Afghan history as far as what was transpiring during the time that you were there. I traveled from Pakistan um, through the Khyber Pass. I read about this heck when I was in grade five or something or other and always wanted to do it, and finally I did. So I got to Kabul, spent the night there, and then I I had heard that there was a, a revolution in Afghanistan. A few days before I left, I left for Asia at the beginning of May. And from there, I spent a month in China, and then I went to J- Japan, and, and from there, as you already said, to, to, to all these countries and did 70 studies. So I wondered, with the revolution, would I be able to do any research there, not having any idea what this revolution was all about? Anyway, the cab took me uh, to the university, the faculty of agriculture, a whole bunch of people there, but as a foreigner, they took me right in to the dean's office, and he was a gentleman, nicely dressed, suit, tie. So I told him about myself, and I said, was able to do any research here? And he says, of course. And he spoke excellent English, British accent. He got his PhD from the UK. And uh, he said, uh, revolution, I still remember how he put it, revolution, day and a half, you know. <laughs> and I was there. I saw it all. I will tell you all about it. <laughs> I still remember that. Well, it's interesting because you write about it that on April 27, 1978, in the wake of a huge demonstration in front of the presidential palace, the army came to support the people. And after a brief battle with the presidential guard, the government was deposed, military officers then released a bunch of jailed leaders and invited that party their party, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the PDPA, to form this government under the leadership of Noor Mohammed Tariki. He's a writer and poet. And the military supported them because they were the only ones who had a program, namely this particular party, for land reform and progressive social and economic reform. So it's, it's interesting. Normally when you think of an army coup, you think of regression away from democratic rights. But in this particular case, there were stunning progressive reforms that were implemented rather quickly with great amounts of positive outcomes for so many of the Afghanis. Can you share with us what were some of the priorities of the government, priorities that was so much different than the governments before and governments after that they prioritized? Well, let me see. No. First of all, they gave equal rights to women. The schools were opened up, but the big thing was that they conducted major land reform. Prior to this, about three-quarters of the land was owned by landlords, and they composed only about 3% of the, of the population, and they charged enormous uh, 25% interest on things, and so they wound up taking the land away from the people. And so that's how it was. So what they did in the beginning of when they came into power at the end of April, 
but it was it wasn't until September 1st that they conducted a major land reform. They cancelled all rural debts except debts that were acquired in the previous six months, and so that meant that all these people got their land back. Let me interrupt you real quick because you write in here is fascinating to me that normally when you think of like in our country, if your parents pass away and they have yeah. any type of property and or, or a will, then you inherit that wealth, you know, with other folks, if you have siblings, etc. But back in those days, Afghanistan, what they were inheriting were monstrous debts, right? The debts got passed from generation to generation. And this is what was immediately relieved. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. They Actually, I always remember this one farmer with his big turban on his head, and I forgot what it was I asked him, and he said, well, even his father's grandfather had lost their property. And then he looked at me, he clasped his hands together, and with tears in his eyes, he just told me all about how this happened, how suddenly he got his land back. And so he was just so extremely happy about this. Uh, so I did four farmers like that, and every one of them were the same, that they uh, got their land back and they were extremely happy. I went to the shops in Kabul, and I discovered the people there were happy too. I remember one of the shop fellows, I wanted to get an overcoat from my wife, and he says, you know, we're not quite sure how the leaders can be Marxist and Muslim, but he said they haven't interfered with our religion, and farmers have our money, and actually business has never been better, and I have no complaints. Uh, there were few soldiers, there were few police on the scene, and it was a remarkable, it was a remarkable experience uh, for me to see this. It was a, a true revolution. It was, uh, and I have a, actually in, in an article I published, I have a picture of a street scene showing a woman in a burqa, a guy all dressed up with a turban, and then there's a man in a business suit, and then there's a woman uh, dressed to her knees, uh, wearing a, a white blouse and a purse and walking along. All this at the same bus stop. It was quite remarkable. These are the views that I saw in, in Kabul. So instead of having the face coverings, they were displaying their, their beauty and just walking down the streets without the burqas, right? I mean, that was... Exactly, uh, exactly. That's really interesting. Well, it was also interesting to me, and I think it's... And really what I wanted for our audience to appreciate, that when we think of Afghanistan, we think of a backwards nation, we think of a religious fundamentalist-dominated type of culture with the Taliban and the you know Mujahideen and that type of thing. But this was a secular government that you're speaking about. And one of the first things that they did, according to your research, was they declared non-alignment in foreign affairs. So they were not in any way trying to align themselves with one country or another, but rather a non-alignment. And they That's have, right. And they, affir- That's right. they affirmed a commitment to Islam within a secular state. And women were given equal rights. Girls were to go to school and to be in the same classroom as boys child marriages and feudal dowry payments were banned, labor, yep. labor unions were legalized, and the equality of, the, of all nationalities within Afghanistan was proclaimed. And then finally, about 10,000 people were released from prison, and within a short, exactly. a short right. time, hundreds of schools and medical clinics were built across the countryside. It just bothers me so much 
that the propaganda that we get in this country is so overwhelming that we think that we have such an interest and we have always claimed such an interest in women's rights in Afghanistan, yet we were largely responsible for reinstituting the types of governments that abused women so fundamentally. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you, can you take us back and forth as to what types of women's rights you already started to address that were granted? Also, what were the, those women's rights losses with the, the subsequent governments that we helped to promote? Okay, well, in a fairly short time, before the, the U.S. intervened, in, in Afghanistan, women made up almost 40% of Afghanistan's doctors and 70% of the teachers, 30% of the civil servants. There were seven women in parliament. So it was, these are the kinds of things that they did. It, it was absolutely remarkable. But there were people who were not happy with this, and that was the USA and the CIA. Actually, President Carter, he was a good president, but he somehow got talked into. It was Vigny Brzezinski, what a rotter of a man he was, Mm-hmm. convinced Jimmy Carter that this is a Marxist government and it should be overthrown. And so, on, actually on July 3rd, 1979, completely secret, unknown to the people and Congress, Carter authorized a $500 million program to overthrow Afghanistan's uh, government. And this was actually codenamed Operation Cyclone by the CIA. And they then proceeded to... Their problem was that they couldn't get enough Afghan people to oppose the government. So they got people from Pakistan, from Saudi Arabia, to, to try to overthrow the, the, the government. What they do is they go into schools, and if there were girls in the classroom, they would kill the teacher, often disemboweling them in the presence of the kids, just to instill fear and panic in the population. Mm. So this is what, it's not that the Americans came in there in 2001. This was done starting in 1980. So, and then they, they got a guy called Hafizullah Amin. Amin was studying at Stanford University. He was somehow recruited by the CIA, sent back to Afghanistan. He pretended to be a hardline Marxist, and he then infiltrated the Taraki government. He became a defense minister and then premier, and then he worked his way to the top, and he, he had Taraki killed and his supporters were jailed or exiled. And he then proceeded to undermine everything. Mm-hmm. And it was just an incredible thing. In, in a few months, he, he undermined the entire government. And Taraki, before that, had appealed to the Soviet Union, you've got to help us because we're being undermined by these people. And the Soviets didn't want to do this. But somehow, in December of 79, Amin was overthrown. It's not known if he was killed by an Afghan army or Soviets. And the Soviets then sent in soldiers to try to reinforce this government. My God, that was an enormous big mistake that they made. And this lasted for 10 years. Brzezinski was pleased as can be about, he said, this is now going to give the USSR a taste of Vietnam. And Dr. Ryan, let me have you back up just a little bit because Taraki actually went to Russia, requested aid because yes. of this burgeoning opposition led by right. the Mujahideen. But go back to the yep. story about how in Pakistan, we were, the CIA was funding these madrasas and 
just basically incubating all sorts of incredibly Islamic fundamentalist, ideologically driven Islamic fundamentalist folks that are the same ones that were the beheaders and the torturers that we've become accustomed to. Can you speak a little bit more about how, when you mentioned the $500 that the Carter administration went to try to overthrow that government, what were the efforts that were going on outside of Afghanistan as well to try to create this ideological, fundamentalist-driven Islamic, you know, nemesis, for lack of better words? Well, what happened is that the CIA got... Pakistan had a, a, a reactionary uh, government at the time, and so they uh, formed special schools called madrasas to brainwash the, the young kids to, to go and oppose, to, to oppose the, the Soviet soldiers and to oppose the Taraki government. And they trained all these people, sent them back into Afghanistan. Problem was that there weren't enough Afghan people, so they wound up recruiting people from Saudi Arabia and so forth, and they, I, I've forgotten, 100,000 of them so forth came in to fight them. And it was during this 10-year hassle, about a half a million to a million Afghan people were killed, and maybe about 90,000 Mujahideen. These Mujahideen were these fanatic fighters. And 18,000 government troops were killed, about 14,500 Soviet soldiers. Anyway, Reagan invited these a group of these uh, Mujahideen to come in as a photograph of Reagan sitting with these people in the White House. Right. And he called them the equivalent of the um, fathers of, of, of America. I forgot how he put it. Freedom fighters. The freedom fighters were the, the equivalent of the, of the people who set up the United States. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't mean yeah. to interrupt, but... He said the same thing about these Contras in Nicaragua around yes. the same time. These people wouldn't even fight the Sandinista soldiers. They would just harass and terrorize the civilian population in Nicaragua. And he called them freedom fighters as well. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. So this whole incubation and creation through these madrasas and such of this ideological, fundamentalist-driven Islamic terrorist They developed and metastasized, if you will, as a direct result of the U.S. CIA influences at that time. Your article indicates that they couldn't even recruit Afghanis as needed, so they recruited these Wahhabist fundamentalist-driven Islamic terrorist types from countries outside of Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, and many others, and actually fed and nurtured, if not actually created this mercenary terrorist type force that predated the Soviet invasion and then increased and got greater support, including most notoriously being supplied with Stinger missiles from the United States post-Soviet invasion, largely resulting in the tens of thousands of deaths to Russians and this fratricidal decimation of the Afghani population. These CIA-funded, or at least enabled, madrasas whose work product were these fundamentalist terrorists. It really begs the question, what kind of media fails to inform a democracy of these crimes? And what kind of foreign policy devises and executes such plans? Eventually, though, right, I mean, when the Russians got involved, and you said in the 10-year conflict, they lost some 14,500 Russian soldiers. But during that whole period, this is where... 
Brzezinski is talking about, and we know that got these Stinger missiles that shot down their planes and thing. But I want, what I wanted you to also include is that we're always rewriting history to make it sound like Russia was doing this, so we had to do that. But clearly, going back to t- the Taraki coup period, that took everyone by surprise, and even Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State of Carter at that time, admitted that there was no evidence of Russian involvement at all. And that only exactly. Can, exactly. Can, you, can you go from there again and explain this geopolitical conflict and how it unfolded? Well, once the Soviets left, what they left is that the CIA recruited so-called Wahhabi missionaries. And these are the ones who then took over the, the country. And the, the Taliban, were the, interestingly, were the people who, these people who opposed them, there were, there were several groups, and the Taliban were one of them. And the Taliban then took the, 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 the country over. And the good thing that they did is that they outlawed heroin. And, the, the, opium uh, tra- the opium trade, right. Yes, but they then dismissed women from jobs as teachers, doctors, professors, all kinds of work. Mm-hmm. It was an awful thing. But nevertheless, this Taliban regime had the support initially of Clinton because he thought that they might be able to build a, a gas pipeline through the area, and he was supportive of it. And in the course of this, there was a guy called Osama bin Laden that came in. He was a, a Saudi Arabian millionaire, from, came from a very powerful, wealthy family. And he came to Afghanistan to recruit the Mujahideen. And so... He was in on, on this as well during that period. So all in all, all this leads up to September 11th, 2001, when, so, so, so when doc- the bombing takes yeah. place in, in the USA. Dr. Ryan, so the yep. actual emergence of the Taliban came in the vacuum that was created after this civil war that was promoted by the West in the madrasas that you referred to as well? Correct. It, is it safe to say that really the Taliban, as well as the Mujahideen, were enabled, if not an outright creation, of our foreign policy, our CIA foreign policy in that area? Exactly. Dr. Ryan, before you elaborate, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. We'll be back right after this. Don't touch that dial. 